Welcome to the podcast Adelante Leadership. I'm proud to be your co-host, Peter Block Garcia. Welcome to Adelante Leadership. I'm your co-host, Tania Hino. Season two is a series of episodes that encourage and inspire you to embrace the power of your leadership. We are leaning into the knowledge from season one's previous incredible guests. Lonnie Tristan Renteria is a scholar, activist, creative type, teacher, and therapist. He's a former college professor and enjoys the psychoeducation aspect of therapy. He's produced documentaries, written, acted in, and directed shows. Lonnie is an expert in psychology and trauma recovery. He has taught classes in French, Spanish, psychology, special topics, cultural and critical theory. Teaching is his passion. When he's not teaching, he's engaged in community building events, reading a book, writing or watching films. Lonnie, thanks so much for joining us at Adelante Leadership. Hi, Lonnie. Thank you so much for being here with us. Can't wait to have a conversation with you. Thank you very much for inviting me, uh, Peter and Tanya. This is an honor. Lani, please tell our audience a little bit about your story and who you are. Ah, <laughs> just really quick. I, I am a mental health uh, provider, um, used to be the executive director of Puentes Mental Health in, in Burien, Washington. Um, I used to be a college professor, um, but now I dedicate myself to just psychotherapy, mm -hmm. education and evaluation work. Um, and I currently live in New Orleans. And you're picking up the accent. <laughs> you're working on that, aren't you? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Just been around a lot of people, you get that, you know? It does. That's the way accents work and language works, right? Um, and from, from your experience, Lonnie, what have you come to understand about leadership? That's a big question. One of the things that I have felt, so this is actually a, a conversation that I had this morning with one of my, one of my patients. Um, we, we were talking about leadership specifically, and oftentimes one of the reasons why people come into leadership as I have experienced it, it's all anecdotal. There's often been something in their life, potentially a trauma or some, something in their life that prompted them to get, get a ahead of it and want to make that change. And, um, and so oftentimes you, you get that gain that energy from like, just, just thinking about, you know, why people, people got into the civil rights movement. They didn't just decide, okay, today we're going to do, you know, start marching. It's like, no, I got into this because of these injustices I was seeing and, and we need to get other people with like-mindedness. So, so for me, leadership it often comes out of a place of a need that needs to be met and expectations that are not being met. Mm -hmm. And if you get a bunch of people like-minded who want to change, then you move forward. Because when I think of leadership, you think of, I think of momentum, mm -hmm. you know, any kind of project that potentially can progress us forward and to better ourselves, better our situation, uh, to thrive. That's again, often how I see leadership. Mm -hmm. So that's hoping in a nutshell that you know, how I see it. So what has your leadership journey has been and how do you step into your leadership? That's a good question. And I think a lot has to, in a lot of ways, as I mentioned earlier, has to do with trauma and recognizing that there were places, things that weren't in place that needed to be in place. And so, you know, I grew up in the era of, uh, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles at the time, you know, Los Angeles in the seventies was very segregated. Um, mm -hmm. So I grew up in a very, 
very predominantly Latinx uh, environment where, you know, it was really funny because English, you know, is kind of my second language. Yeah. And yet at the same time, the expectations of who we were and what we were going to become were, were not. If you would have asked me at 10 or even 15, if I would be in this position right now, that I would be a counselor, that I would be a, a mm-hmm. professor, that I would be all these things, I would have laughed at you. There was no model for me yeah. at the time mm-hmm. outside of the other models that people existed. But these are people that were, you know, in the working class, not in the professional class. And, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. trying to say that there's one better than the other. It's just that there was no model. I mean, the expectation was Lonnie was going to be a Mac mechanic of some sort. He was going to work at a retail or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I would be sitting, helping communities, you know, foster resilience, taking a whole clientele that was being underserved mm-hmm. and me being the one everyone was funneling to. I mean, there was just no way I would have thought that. And, and so my experience is, is recognizing that over time, not only did I take all the adversities I've had, you know, sometimes <laughs> we talk about adverse childhood experience, uh, experiences mm-hmm. um, and how those, those play a role in um, how people succeed in life or, you know, what, yeah. what kinds of things might show up. And then I tell everybody, like, I'm an eight. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's like, you should be like, in a really bad state. And I said, no, I'm not. I, I chose you know, at one point to take those things, turn them around and use and put into place. And so my first connection with becoming a leader and being active was during HIV AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time when HIV AIDS was still was still a really big issue, there was not much being done in the Latin community in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. There were, there would be news articles in the Los Angeles Times, for, for example, where where these, you know, especially people, women were showing up in the ER very sick mm. and then would find out right there that they were, they had HIV and they were basically go- going into the AIDS kind of syndrome. And, um, but at the time they did, there was really nothing there for them. Mm. And so that, which brought up a whole other area of like, okay, so in our, in our communities, no one's having a conversation about prevention and stuff. Cause most of the people that were showing up at the ER were people from our community. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, and, and same thing was happening in the African-American communities. Mm-hmm. And so, but no one was talking about it. So I, I felt really strongly about it because here I am, you know, this 15 year old, I'm 15 year old, uh-huh. right. You know, coming into my hormones and, you know, wanting to explore. And then all of a sudden there's a scary thing out there that could potentially kill me. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I did is I started to really get involved in just some of the efforts. And, um, you know, obviously I took some time out. Um, but I went uh, after college or during college, I would say, I got involved in different uh, organizations that help kind of promote certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the areas was uh, at the University of Redlands. And I'm okay with saying that because I've already told the <laughs> told the president and the provost and everybody else back then my feelings about this. At the time, I, I had uh, become part of the Women's Center and I started distributing condoms mm-hmm. all around the campus. <laughs> wonderful. Well, it was wonderful for us. I can't tell you how many death threats I got. Well, I'm sure. Um, I had people finding out where I lived and then (laughs) writing all over my doors. Wow. Uh, I would get get those letters with, you know, that they cut out from the magazines and send it out. It's just a constant thing for, uh, I would say for for seven months, I would get, fag, please leave. Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So to the point that I would have to be escorted everywhere on campus for my own safety. (gasps) And so um, I left because it was that, that that became okay here's my activism and yeah. something really important 
I helped form a group called the Coalition to End Homophobia on the mm-hmm. campus, which also created a stir. We were in the news in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had there was a even forget which channel came to talk to us because there was a I think her name was Kathy Uribe in Los Angeles who who had created the center for uh, for for youth coming out and we're not getting support. And so they were, they were doing this whole project. We got to the point where even Glad took notice of what was happening mm. and which was, uh, we weren't ready for that. So it was like, okay, I got, I kind of got, it's like that hero's journey. You get thrown yeah. in, and you don't really want to be there. <laughs> Next thing you know, it's like, okay, I'm a leader. <laughs> Everyone's looking and now I have to be very careful. And then all of a sudden I'm starting to get invited to speak. And, and mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People are looking to me, looking to me to be a voice. And that was really scary. It took a toll on me for, for a mm-hmm. while. I mean, I ended up leaving that and took some time off to just kind of take care of myself already. I was in, in my early 20s, um, but I, I, I didn't stop. I always was kind of in the yeah. background. And then I realized that that's kind of where I liked to be. Mm-hmm. Fast forward, I ended up moving. To, I, I went to San Diego and I became part of a, an LGBT group there. Then I moved to Portland and then I became one of the co-chairs of the LGBTQ uh, organization there for two years and just trying to promote again HIV awareness uh, visibility mm-hmm. uh, luckily enough in Portland it was it was a totally different experience it was very positive and then shortly thereafter I just went into grad school so grad school I I, st- I became part of a group of students who were trying to get at the time if you had were had a same gender partner this is before you know, same gender marriage, you weren't allowed to live in the graduate mm-hmm. school dorms because you weren't in a heterosexual mm-hmm. couple. Yeah. So we got together at the University of Washington and basically pushed and pushed and pushed. I ended up on the news. Wow. Um, and, and explaining, you know, our situation and why it was important. And we ended up being able to go into that. I was able to move in at the time with my, my partner uh, and lived in student housing because rents even were <laughs> expensive back then in, in the Utah district. Um, And then slowly but surely, as I started gravitating, I got really interested in trauma work and trauma literature uh, and just different movements. Uh, so it became more uh, my leadership, my activism became more academic at that point. I got really interested in what was happening in French Canada around Quebecois sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually got a Fulbright to go live in Canada wow. and in Montreal, where I was talking to a lot of people who were very much part of this kind of Canadian or French Canadian or Quebecois movement and what that meant just to have an understanding. And they were drawing a lot on what was happening in the civil rights movement, especially mm-hmm. Their leadership. Yeah. So oftentimes when you talk to these people, playwrights, uh, authors, and you would ask them, you know, the influences, and they would say, they would say, yeah, it's a lot of the, the civil rights movement that was happening. We were watching very closely um, because we were considered also second-class citizens in Canada. And so we wanted to have our say in, in you know, how we, we run things over here in Quebec and, and mm-hmm. just be able to do, have that upward mobility and be part of the government governing process. So I thought that was very exciting because it, a lot of the literature uh, from French Canada from the 60s, you know, probably to into the 90s, 
uh, was about, you know, who are we and and how do we move forward? Hmm. Uh, how do we become leaders and sovereign in our own selves? Yeah. And to be able to promote our needs in a way that's assertive and uh, it honors who we are in terms of our own cultural heritage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that then threw me back into, I came back to the Seattle and mm-hmm. worked on a film, a documentary, which dealt with racism, body image, uh, homophobia. Mm-hmm. It ended up being on television vision for about three years. Wow. Um, that moved me into, hey, there's no visibility around Spanish speaking movies around here. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so that started generating some conversation and one to help start the Latino Film Festival. Wow. Oh, yay. That's right. I, I remember that. That's where I first met you. Yeah. And now that you say that, I was like, God, that's right. I forgot about that. And this is why Peter and I are doing this podcast. It is so important that our Latine community celebrates people that are leading and are creating visibility for our community. Mm-hmm. And we tend to run into this culture dynamic of criticar and judging mm-hmm. instead of elevating mm-hmm. our community. Because because we are with this trauma of the colonized mind, we automatically, we help the colonizer continue colonizing our people. Mm-hmm. And so we create this dynamic of competition, right? I was going to ask, I'm hearing your leading story and how you step into your leadership. It reminds me of stories of jalapeno stories from Leno. <laughs> Sometimes it's not that you want to be a renowned leader. Just speaking up, you became a leader because you spoke of your passion. You spoke of something that's important to you and that throws you in the fire. I know that being in the LGBTQ plus community is hard as a leader and as just a regular being and being a they, them, and ages is already hard. How was it for you in the regards to trauma and regards to our Latine community? <laughs> so oh, that's a big question and yes. it's an important it's an important question. I'll sum it up later on and what I've learned and how, how I use it in my own teaching and how I use it, how I facilitate that with, with my clients. So as I mentioned earlier, oftentimes, you know, I got involved in things because there was a lack. In those processes, I also helped out with a Latino theater group, done some theater in Seattle too, and um, was kind of in the in the background with that. So and I, I got really involved in the arts community kind of as the background person. But in the process, and this is not to speak ill of people, I had to confront a lot of the trauma trauma that these folks are bringing to the table too. And without wanting to like therapize them, it became very clear to me that a lot, they were also just as impassioned to get things done. But when you got to know their histories, it became very clear that they had, there was a lot of unprocessed trauma. And so what does unprocessed trauma do? Your insecurity, which becomes ego. I know. Ego then takes front and center because what happens in some cases, I need validation, validation, validation. (laughs) And what ends up happening is that everybody starts throwing each other under the bus. It's like, oh, guess what? That's kind of what the colonizers want us to do. Exactly. And at the same time, we are not having the conversation about what trauma looks like. Um, People are are not addressing their mental health in our communities. That's starting to change. I'm not saying, but at the time, 
you know, the, yeah. the questions were not being addressed necessarily. People were very suspicious still. And I, and I still find that uh, as, a, as a therapist. But I also feel that, you know, it, on one hand, it's like people that jump in because they have the energy, but in the same, at the same token, they are because of unprocessed traumas or just maybe other pieces that those things get in the way of their, of their leadership. And it's not that they are bad people. It's just that sometimes these things just get in the way. And one of the things that I explain to folks, our fundamental need as human beings, I'm trained in attachment theory. And that's one of the areas where I find that the, the strongest kind of link to all of us as human beings. You know, what do we want? And, and it's also come up in stuff we've talked about right now. And you, you mentioned something earlier. What do we want as human beings fundamentally? Every human being, when we are born, we don't decide we want to give up as a baby. You, we want to thrive. We want to know that we are going to be emotionally safe and that we are going to have some kind of connection with another human being. We're, we're pack animals in that way. Mm-hmm. And when we do not feel the emotional connection or the emotional safety, we start to get nervous and we start adapting to those things. So some, some kids over their development will become oppositional. Why? Because their world doesn't seem safe. Mm. So what happens when you get all these leaders who are now adults? Guess what? This is what I tell my clients all the time. I said, the moment we're bonding with another human being, put your brain away because we're all that three-year-old, all those three-year-olds on the playground and we don't play fair sometimes. Mm-hmm. We don't play fair. If your need or expectation isn't being met, you are going to throw a tantrum and you're going to let me know about it. Oh, yeah. We know about it. And, and, and or you're going to do something to let me know in protest. So can we do something productive? Probably not. And if we are now working towards something and then someone does something that doesn't meet my expectations or hopes, well, I'm going to probably undermine you. Okay, well, that's great because that's what the colonizers want. Mm-hmm. So we back into that, like, I know it's, it seems very simplistic, but you know, I've worked with families and couples and they always laugh at the end because at first they're like, oh, Lana, you're crazy. And then they're like, oh my God, I acted like a three-year-old. So we all act like three-year-olds when we have something that we're passionate about and our need isn't getting met. Some people are able to parlay that and make that really workable. But oftentimes in our group, sometimes that drama that everyone talks about gets in the way because again, those insecurities that have not been addressed. Um, like for example, Tanya and you, maybe we disagree on something because you have a need expectation that's not being met and what's not meeting my, so instead of collaborating with you, I might throw protest and you might throw protest back because what, that's how we adapted. That's uh-huh. how we adapted in our families. This is what we saw in how we're represented. When we see the Latin people, at least in the seventies and eighties, how did we, how did they represent us as reactive, mm-hmm. as reactive, as, as hot headed, as irrational? Yes. Um, yes. Anybody who, right, anybody, any activists were always, it used to make me absolutely apoplectic, the media portrayal of any activism, (laughs) because it was like, they're causing trouble, they're they're vilifying any activism whatsoever, right? Lonnie, will you say more about the connection? You were touching on the, the colonizer or the colonization aspect within this realm of leadership and healing, but say, tell us more about, from your perspective, the impact of colonization as a legacy on Latin community leaders. Or, and how does that impede also our leadership? I think it's connected here somewhere, but help us. You've been talking 
talking about it through the, our conversation. There's so much to unpack on trauma oh, yeah. in our Latin community. I'll let you answer. There's, we're not going to get it done because there's so much to unpack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I want to give a model. I want to give a shout out to, to a French philosopher. When I was teaching, I used to teach uh, cultural theory and I used to look at uh, the work by Michel Serre, uh, who is a, a more modern uh, French philosopher, kind of postmodern. And he created a model that I thought was really interesting and one that I kind of bring to teaching because it's a good foundation for, especially when you're trying to get people to become leaders. I used this model when I was teaching, uh, I I was doing a a class with some kids on Vashon Island. I used this model to talk about resilience and and why this was important that they also, you know, voice their opinion. The thing about the, you know, to keep it really simple, because again, this can be hours and hours and hours of a conversation. The colonizers, French, the Spanish, they were really good Mm -hmm. at convincing people that this is what civilization looked like. And so we talk about, often talk about the center. Mm -hmm. This is the center. Center, everyone look to the center because that's what you want to aspire to. So everything, here are all the rules, here's everything. It's like, okay, great. That's the center. So so now we've got all this literature being written where yeah. the, the literature that's being disseminated is quote unquote science, but really what it is, is just impressions. You know, it's it's kind of a pseudoscience. And the problem is it keeps getting rewritten through that lens. So mm-hmm. I have a friend, Nate, who did some work at the University of Washington uh, around how the Germans were portraying the, the Filipinos. And one of the points that he, he was making is that the Ger- Germans were, would go to the Philippines and then they would write about the, cult, the Filipino culture and blah, 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 and then come back to Germany. And then so people were who were writing about the Filipino culture were people who never went to the Philippines. And then they would write about the Filipino culture and then take that literature and take it to the Philippines. And the Filipinos started to write their own culture based on oh, the text well. that were written by the Filipinos. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that happened in other places. You know, this is... Oh. That happened in other places, right? Quebec is a good example. I mean, and I'm sure that there's, you can find examples throughout Latin America where you're just rewriting what the Spanish were saying or the French were saying Mm -hmm. about the colonies, right? Because they were the the writers of the history, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so in terms of legacy, what do we do? Well, well, if if that is our model, that's the center of what we're supposed to be, you know, what means civilization. If I'm outside of that, if my traditions are outside of that, the way I do think, well, that's couched as wrong. And this is the other piece that I'm constantly confronting with my therapy and and even with the folks that I'm working with is that because we're so focused on kind of that binary, and and this is not a dig on religion, but um, I did a class on apocalyptic literature. And one of the points that I made in that class, and luckily enough, more people are making this point is that Western society is very based on that model of the cosmic battle between good and evil. So Mm -hmm couch things in terms of good, bad, right, wrong, good, evil. So there's no, there's no gray area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you have that strong, so even if you go into the secular side of things, there's still that strong idea of good, bad, bad guys, right? You watch the movies, you've got the bad guys and the good guys. And then unfortunately during different periods, you know, you depending on what's happening in, you know, in American culture, oh, these are the bad guys and these are how they're portrayed. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of them are brown, you know? Yep. Uh, yep. So it's that kind 
population. Um, and so we get caught up in that. And that's, I think, part of that legacy. So if, again, Peter and I, we and I didn't agree necessarily on something because it's so embedded in us. You might see me as an opponent. And so mm. my opponent is bad in mm. my eyes. And so I'm going to really push, push, push or vice versa without having that collaborative spirit because I have not had my needs and expectations met. And I have come to visit the world with that expectation as a leader that I'm not going to get needs and expectations met. And I'm going to find a lot of people who are probably feeling the same way. And guess what? We have unprocessed trauma uh-huh. and, and we get in each other's way. Yes. Yes. And the way to healing is to start to not just unpack trauma, but understand, understand your attachment style. And you're going to understand that you're going to see the world differently. When you feel secure in who you are in the sense that you're going to be curious about life, you're going to, you're going to be more gracious. You're going to be kinder to yourself. And then you're going to try to really dismantle this notion of good and bad, and then start focusing on meeting your emotional needs, expectations, and your hopes, and then really work on what do you struggle to accept? Mm -hmm. The healing starts there. And then that's where the action happens because now my ego is gone. I don't want conflict resolution. I want conflict transformation. Yes. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we have conflict resolution, we're not necessarily going to get our needs met. I might still have resentment for you. And I might still have a little bit of rancune in place, like they say in French, like like, grudge. If if you and I (laughs) sat down and said, you are not my opponent, we maybe our needs and expectations are different, but we can, we need to have the hard, hard conversations so that we can be collaborative because you're not my opponent. You're not my opponent. And so if I come in with that spirit, we have the ability to look look bigger and then we create something new. Mm -hmm. So back globally. So this is goes back to that uh, Michel Serre model. I love that model. Now the center, we've started to potentially dissolve the center because those people that were part of the center kicked us out. But you know what? We still live in this, in this system and Mm -hmm. we still have information. We have knowledge and we are now coming in and going, huh? And just like a virus, just like a germ, what does a virus or germ do? It goes into a biological system. The biological system, it's going to attack it because that's what it does. And then in order to integrate it, it takes that information, right? Just like a vaccine, takes that information so that when we recognize it, we make it not so much inert, but it's part of the system now. Mm -hmm. A healthy system grows, right? Mm -hmm. Every time I'm vaccinated, my immune system gets better and stronger and stronger. An unhealthy system is going to fall apart. Exactly. So what I tell people is like, just like biological systems, if our system in so many ways is weak, it'll fall apart. Exactly. If our system is strong, may be able to make room, not so much trying to integrate and not, it's it's trying to integrate that information. It just creates this. So the system is constantly growing and it takes time. It's not, not forever. And so this, what, when I explain this to, to the students, it's like, you are those little pieces of information that are coming in with your life experiences. And because you're able to come in, you're shaking up the center because the center is no longer what you're looking towards. You're looking horizontally now. You're not looking up and down. You're not looking at good, bad, right, wrong. It's like our experiences are all our experiences and there isn't one right experience. There's not one wrong experience, which we were told. You know, I saw this really funny meme where it was a Spanish conquistador who said, <laughs> who says to, and again, it's not a dig against religion, but he says uh, to the a native chief, I forget who it is, but he says, uh, he says, I'm here to come and to teach you about God and, and, and get you away from the sun and the moon. The guy responds, yeah, but the sun and moon are real. <laughs> uh, right. and, and, you know, it's, again, not to be disrespectful, but it's that idea of I'm going to teach you what's right. Forget that 
we have this calendar that understands celestial stuff that predates what the Spanish are doing. You know, we got the Egyptians who understand this, the Greeks that understand these things, and we just totally disregard it because now we have this cosmology for you know at least a thousand two hundred years that's ruled under one you know mm-hmm. one, one ruling group, right? And and that's very again goes back to that that binary and, and that colonization. So if you're not questioning it, it just becomes reality, becomes truth. And so you know where we are right now, and this is I think what ultimately is important is it's great on paper when we talk about dismantling you know the colonization blah 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 it's another thing to actually sit there and look at ourselves and go what part of us are colonized how do we heal from it because now i have to be intentional about my healing and i don't you know not so much i have to love my culture it's like no i gotta love me so that as i free myself it's almost existential as i love myself and i free myself i can help my other folks free themselves and when they're in conflict i propose (gasps) conflict transformation and help them through this not as an enabler but say here's some tools you got here's the thing you've learned these tools and use them for yourself i'll help you these are tools that once i'm gone you're my replacement in many ways and this is what we're teaching the students you're not therapists but you could be mental health helpers and that you can identify when people are are struggling because of you know where we are Uh lani you are blowing my mind i know you are blowing my mind this is exactly what we peter and i are doing this and i would just I i feel like we need to have a whole season on trauma and i'm sure you know about body the body keeps the score oh, absolutely you know, you know about my grandmother's hands i know but you are it do therapy from the alderian perspective so that it's not about the freud idea that women are envy of the penis sorry <laughs> <laughs> it, it is true, it's, but right. that that woman in hysteria because they they wanted the same privilege men had. Mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. not what it came with the anatomy, but what the privilege yeah. they saw that they were getting yeah. targeted and that they were constrained. If we and we are able to lead and have organizations and have it be in our Latinx community, thinking of we all have trauma. Yeah, and mm-hmm. look at ourselves because that's what I tell. It's like when you're looking at yourself, like when they keep telling you, sending you these messages that you need to lose weight because mm-hmm. your body is not good enough mm-hmm. look at yourself in the mirror and say all all of this is beautiful mm-hmm. yes well, and, they're and telling I, me that that's not beautiful yeah. but this is beautiful it's the same thing with right, trauma right. Same and, thing with trauma. and now i'm gonna get all nerdy here because i uh, this is very <laughs> exciting because i've got a couple of stories around that but but yes i totally agree <laughs> story that i i start with and this is the one that i think is important for all of us to have um, because it goes with what you were saying, Tanya. So I used to teach positive psychology and I taught it for a while. And what I used to do with my students is before class started, I would go to the whiteboard, dry eraser. I would write, what's wrong with you? And then I would leave the classroom and I would wait for them to come in. So about 15 minutes, I'd wait. And then as soon as the time would start, I'd walk, walk in. And then I'd kind of go, hi, you know, you know, Professor Renteria, I just positive psychology, blah, 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 introduce it, talk about the syllabus. And then 15 minutes in, I would stop. And then the students would be very uncomfortable because I would just got really quiet. And I said, let's address the elephant in the room. I said, I said, I've taught this for so many quarters and no one has ever either erased it or has asked about the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. And so they get, you know, all the time they would always say like, ha ha, you know, they thought it was funny. So I said, isn't it, isn't it interesting? I said, I don't, I'm not going to ask why not, but I said, I bet you somebody in your life has asked you this question in a way that it didn't allow you to be yourself. And I said, not only that, if you were to just think about how every commercial, anytime you see mm-hmm. some drama, 
drama on TV where people are having conflict is because you are not what's wrong with you. And so we are a society where we are being told that we have deficits. And so we spend the rest of our day focusing on our deficits and how to hide them and to fix them. And I said, I bet you if I went into your bathroom right now, I would find all these things that fix you. Not only that they fix you, someone made a whole lot of money off of you. <laughs> and then I said, and I said, and I want to ask all the women in the room, and this is, con- this is consistent. I want to ask all the women in the room, the day you don't wear makeup, someone has to make a comment. I said like, are you sick? Are you okay? Are you this? Are you that? All the women would always just raise their hand. Like, and then I would be like, see that narrative is so embedded, right? That's the same thing. Like this, you know, as we talk about colonization, right? Those things are so embedded in our everyday that they become real for us. Mm-hmm. And then I said, Interesting enough, I said, one of the things that is part of this is that, you know, we see things through opposition, you know, in our mind, we we understand things through opposition. And so obviously these marketers and purveyors of tradition or whatever, showing us what the opposite is. And, and so what we have to be, because we potentially be opposite of that. And so this is, be, this is the norm. This is the center, right? And so I said, so if that's true, I said, you know, up because of down cold because of hot. And these are all experiences, bad because of good, and then right because of wrong. Again, lived experiences. And if this is true, I'm going to do something really radical right now. So I would go back to the board, I would erase what's wrong with you, or I actually would erase wrong. And I said, and I put what's right. And I said to everybody, all right, everybody, what's right with you? And they all would look at me funny. And I said, no, seriously, I've asked this question, what's right with you? Quiet. And I said, but if I asked you what's wrong with you, you can give me a whole list. And everyone's like, kind of, yeah. And I said, okay. This one kid, 21, one-year-old raised his hand really because he was the debater in the class. And he says, Professor Entria, <laughs> so if I answer that question for you, you're going to think I'm a, a narcissist or you're going to mm-hmm. think that I am conceited and I don't want to give you the wrong impression. And I said, okay. I said, let me ask you this. And I said, are you loyal? He's like, actually to a fault. I said, okay. Are you honest? He's like, I try to be. Do you have any talents? And he says, I paint and I play the guitar. I said, do you do that well? He's like, oh yeah, actually, yeah, I do. Okay. You know, are you a good listener? Yeah. Are you kind? I try to be. So I name off about 20 things. And I looked at him and I said, I bet you it took an hour and a half for you to get dressed. And because you look, look at your hair so perfect, your eyebrows, look at you. You're just, oh, you're just, oh, look at how well put together you are. And I said, I'm, I'm glad that you, you came in to give that good impression. I said, but you know what? I don't care about that because in the end, I care that you're loyal, you're a good listener, you're a good friend, you're talented. Oh. And so usually that, that would then get me to the end of the lecture that day. And I would tell the students, I said, so that's what positive psychology is. We are intentional about our strengths and we are intentional about our healing. It's not about, oh, it's things are going to get better. It's like, no, it's about what we do to make our life worth living and thriving. Yeah. And I would say to them, all right, folks, the next time you walk through my door, you leave your deficits outside because you're going to come in here badasses because you have no one to yes. compare yourself to. You need to be you and you're going to do you how you're going to do it. You know, it just comes down to, you know, you recognizing kindness, you you know, compassion and not hurting anybody. Can I sign up for your class now? <laughs> <laughs> That's, I think, the foundation of any time I'm doing some kind of teaching is like, you know, when we, what really focuses us on on what the best parts of us are, you know, we, we want to build on that. But sometimes you do have situations in which I found doing the classes with the kids is that they themselves didn't, couldn't say sometimes what their strengths were because they were so focused on the criticism that they got from their parents 
uh, from they really struggled. But I would say, what does confidence feel like? And they would be like, I don't know. I said, let's try to feel it in your body. They'd be, I don't know. I'm like, okay, well, that's where we need to start. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lani, we will schedule another follow up. You're leaving people with thirst of knowing more, and you're leaving us with, I want to ask more. <laughs> yeah, I was making some notes. And so, but don't forget the second story. You were going to share a couple stories with us. So bring those back when we reschedule. But before we go, you're coming back to tell us more stories and to unpack trauma and how do we see ourselves as leaders mm-hmm. in the positive life that we deserve. Yeah. Thank you, Lani, for being here. It's an honor. And if you're listening to Lani, uh, stay tuned. There's part two, part three coming back because we need to unpack trauma yes. in our Latine community. Thank, Thank you, you so Lani. much for inviting me. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Ciao. Bye. Our next episode will be in Spanish with Jackie Larainzar. Peter, tell us a little bit about Jackie. Jackie Larainzar was born in Mexico City and came to the United States as a political asylee. Her asylum case opened the doors to thousands of LGBTQ plus individuals looking for safety and freedom to live and love. She is known for her work to advance racial equity in government institutions such as the city of Seattle and the city of Oakland on race equality, LGBTQ rights, women's rights, indigenous rights, immigrants and refugees, and the arts. She loves to support community members and staff to become leaders that can advance institutional change, centering their strengths, well-being, and wisdom to advance policies, programs, and services that create an anti-racist, responsible, accountable, transparent, and inclusive democratic government. We welcome your comments on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Apple. For more resources and information, visit our website, www.adelanteleadership.com. We want to hear your thoughts, ideas, and your Latin leadership story. Muchas gracias por escuchar a Adelante Leadership. Thank you for tuning in and stepping into your Latin leadership. <laughs>